0: Please open in your Bibles to the first letter of John. First John, chapter one. First John, chapter one, verse one. This is the word of the Lord. and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come now submitting to your word. We come from various dynamics, various needs, various kinds of weeks, and we come hungry. We come as needy people to a generous God. We come as a church where there is much rejoicing and there is much weeping. We come needing to meet with you. We are not interested in religion. We want to serve the one true living God and hear from Him. So even now, as we look to Your Word, we pray that You would do a work in this church. We pray that You would unite this church in love, that there would be a revival individually and corporately. We pray that there would be sins confessed this morning, and that there would be a time of refreshing that we are so desperate for. We pray for that refreshing in our land. This is a dark and, and needy land, a land that is so far from you, so corrupt. And yet you are the God who saves. You are the God who shines light in the darkness. So would you shine in the, in the darkness of our land? We pray for our leaders of this land. We pray for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, that you would do him good, that you would cause him to be born again. We pray that our Prime Minister would bow the knee to Jesus and in so doing would then serve his country righteously. We pray the same for Prime Minister, uh, uh, Premier Daniel Smith, Mayor Jody Gondek. We pray that you would also do them good and shine in the darkness of their hearts to see the splendor of the risen Christ. Do a work in our land, and do a work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I once heard a story of a young girl who had done something wrong. But instead of telling her parents, she decided to lie and cover it up. But that didn't make the guilt go away. This young girl of about 11 or 12 started to pull away from the family out of fear that the truth would come out. For about a month or so, I was told, this girl was so cold She lived with a heavy weight on her shoulders, a weight of guilt, and the increasing weight of isolation. She was afraid of the punishment her dad would give her if she was found out, so she hid. Eventually, about a month later, this young girl couldn't handle it anymore. She broke down, I'm told, and cried, and she told her parents, Everything. The dad said to to me, it all made sense. Everything made sense. She was hiding out of shame. So do you know what the parents' response was? Now that she's been found out, the truth has come out. They hugged her. They told her all was forgiven. It was out in the open now. No more hiding." The most surprising part for this girl was she's waiting for her dad's response. And the final word on the matter was, he looked her dead in the eye and said, isn't this so much better, not having to hide from us? I think I know something about you. You too have areas of your life that you're trying to keep hidden. Maybe it's scandalous. Maybe it's just a little rough around the edges. But whatever it is, you're trying to keep it quiet and contained. Keep it out of view of others, and if you could, you'd prefer to keep it out of view of God. And yet, as much as you think this hiding isn't affecting you, it is. And it's affecting people around you as well the weight of guilt and fear of being found out doesn't have to be the end of the story friends as we look to this passage in first john i bring a message from the one true god to you the lord is saying to you today it's time to step out of the darkness and it's time to come into the light having our bibles open keeping first john 1 and a pinch of chapter 2 we see the apostle john wrote this letter not just 1 john but there's 1 2 3 first, second third john he wrote all of them to a community of churches and individuals who are facing difficult times From the outside world, they're facing persecution for their Christian beliefs, but more importantly on the inside, there were false teachers who had risen up, they had broken away from the apostolic teaching, and they were now deceiving the believers. False teaching. So that's why John is writing this letter. This shows the apostolic priority. The... The greatest threat to the church is not persecution, but false teaching. The greatest threat is false teaching. He even says that in chapter 2, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. False teachers had begun to teach a wrong view of Jesus and a wrong view of sin. John addresses these and a few other issues in his letter with the intention to convince the believers how dead wrong those false teachers are, to then confirm in their hearts what the truth is. He wants them to have a right view of God. Michael wanted to know if I'd have any Greek in the sermon, and yes, he wants them to gnosko. You know, gnosko means I know, and it's all over this letter. He wants them to know the truth. So many of the struggles in the Christian life come from gospel amnesia. That's the problem that then creates a whole host of other problems. We know the gospel, but our grasp of it starts to erode for a whole host of reasons. Once we lose sight of the radiance of Christ, we then start to drift and then go down, down into darkness. Lose sight of Christ you go down into darkness. Personal experience will tell you that. I don't need to convince you. That was the experience of Christians then, and that is the experience of Christians now. So, with that context in mind, we then look at our passage. John takes up his pen, and he writes. You can even just see, likely, in your Bible, the division you can see the first division is the first four verses. And what this is, is a prologue. It's an introduction, which is quite interesting and quite, quite a different way of starting a letter in those days. Ordinarily, you'd have some sort of a greeting. You'd have an introduction, who is writing to who, and a bit of a greeting. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even identify himself. He just goes right into the prologue. He doesn't even do that in Second and Third John. But this first letter is unique with the prologue. He writes in such a way as to distinguish his teaching from that of the false teachers. This is no ordinary letter with all the letters circulating around and all the teaching. This is unique. The prologue here bears a striking similarity to the prologue in his gospel account. You might remember from John 1 that in the beginning was the word. We see here in verse 1 that which was from the beginning concerning the word of life. What he's doing here is making a sledgehammer declaration. The false teachers have changed their tune, they've changed their views, and they're leading others to also change their views. But the apostolic teaching has not changed. The gospel that John wrote of earlier remains the same. The offer of salvation remains the same. Jesus Christ remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And though the, the prologues are similar, there's a distinct difference between the, the two. In John's Gospel, he emphasizes that Jesus is God. He emphasizes the deity of Christ, the Word from all eternity past. But in this letter, he emphasizes the humanity of of Christ part of the false teaching in that day was to diminish that Jesus was truly human they say he only appeared to be human so stressing the incarnation is key as he writes false teachings even in our day do wonky things with John 1 they do wonky things to produce a warped Christology and a fellowship of darkness. As the, lib- the librarian at London Seminary used to say to new students, he would say, "'Men, study church history well, "'for there are no new heresies.'" John is going to give personal testimony, not just facts. He's trying to convince his audience. "'Why should you listen to me and not them?' Why should you listen to the apostles and not all these other spiritual gurus who are trying to dupe you? The reason? John and the apostles are eyewitnesses. He says in verse 1 that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John stands tall with the other apostles who were disciples of their Lord during his earthly ministry. Why should you believe us? Because we know Jesus. We know him. We heard him as he called us from the fishing boats. We heard him preach to thousands. And then he would pull us inside the house and explain to us privately. We heard him. We have seen him with our eyes as we watched him heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. Even John, who saw his transfiguration glory, he has seen Christ. They saw him walk on water and hang on a Roman cross. They even saw him after his resurrection show his hands and his side, touch him. Boy, were they glad to see him. We have touched him with our hands. You even think about John, the disciple the Lord loved, who would lean up against the Lord during the Last Supper. We know him. In this apostolic eyewitness account, John speaks in the third person to align himself. It's not just him. It's all the apostles who knew Christ, who can personally attest to the reality of Christ's person and work. He didn't just appear to be human. We lived with the guy. He is the real deal, fully God and fully human. The life that was made manifest, as we see in verse 2. Verse 2 reads, And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's the direct link between the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. The eternal word of John 1 is made manifest. Eternally with the Father, and yet the Son did not exploit that position of being the Son of God. Rather than exploiting it and holding on to that forever, He condescended by taking on a human nature to come and save sinners, to be even the obedient Son, the eternal life made manifest. Verse 3, he summarizes the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, and he says, That which we have seen and heard, referring to Christ, he says, We proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Koinonia, fellowship. Oh, we love that word, don't we? Fellowship, fellowship, just want to have some fellowship. It's biblical, and it's so important, that word. Deeply biblical, deeply meaningful. There's something that the apostles have in their bond together that the false teachers do not have. They know the true Jesus. They've heard him. They've seen him. They've touched him. They walk with him. The apostle John is inviting his readers to share in that fellowship. Friends, just to think that for those who bow the knee to the risen Christ, you will be out of step. With this world but you are in good company with the Apostles so as John begins his letter in a non-typical way he is reminding his readers that the gospel has not changed in the ways that the false teachers have taught It's the same gospel today the second part of verse 3 builds upon the theme of koinonia fellowship it's not just saying Um, that you can find fellowship, commonality with the apostles. It's actually more profound than that. As John says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The church rises and falls on the issue of sound doctrine. If we receive and proclaim the apostolic word about Jesus Christ, We are, by grace alone, brought into saving union with Christ, swept up into the the reign and the love and the, the intensity of the triune Godhead. Remember, John prayed this. He prayed for this in John 17, the high priestly prayer, when he prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. So when you have Christian believers coming together, submitting to the Scriptures, to the authority of the Scriptures, and enjoying the glory of divine love being poured into our hearts, and we share our lives together that's koinonia, that's fellowship. Two Christians talking about the weather, that's good. There's something more. There's something walking in the light. Sharing that is is where we're going in this passage. God has created a society of people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and sharing their lives together. Christians seek the joy that comes from walking in the light. In the light of their God. Verse 4, John says, sort of a purpose statement. He's got a few of them because he's got lots of purposes for this letter, but one purpose statement we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So, whatever you think about when you think of the apostles, what comes to mind an apostle? Don't miss the pastoral burden. And love and joy and warmth that the apostles have for the people of God. He takes some responsibility in ensuring that they are walking with their God and not departing the faith. You might even recall from 2nd and 3rd John that he has no greater joy than to know that his children are walking in the truth. That brings us to the next section of our text this morning, looking at verses 5. To 10? No, into chapter 2. The false teachers were promoting a wrong view of Christ, a wrong view of sin, so he's, he's sort of addressed that already. And now he's going to switch gears, and it, it seems as though he is, he is summarizing what he understands to be the teachings of the false teacher, and then he's going to evaluate them. In verse 5, he assumes all his apostolic authority and he he fires a corrective cannonball right into the heart of the issue. He knows what the issue is and he's going to address it dead on. Verse 5, he writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You see, the Bible uses this imagery, light and darkness, the Bible uses that in different ways. The key is, what is the context? And then that's the way to understand the intended meaning. The apostolic message is essentially about the character of God, but John's not so interested in defining God as much as he is trying to provide a bit of a foundation for ethical implications. You notice in verse 5, God is light. Down in verse 7, God is in the light. The interpretive key to the meaning of this verse is found back in john's gospel if you remember from john 3 john wrote and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What does this mean? It means that the path to God is a path of honesty. Not hiding. You cannot claim to know God when you are hiding from him. You remember Adam and Eve when they recognized their sin, what did they do? They ran and they hid behind some fig leaves thinking to evade their guilt and evade their God. It's instinctive to hide. Yet God is light, and God is in the light, and the way to God is to be exposed by the light of who he is. In verses 6 to chapter 2, verse 2, John outlines and evaluates what he understands to be the position of the false teachers, there are six if statements. Six if statements. You can look down and you can just see it before you. What he's doing is evaluating the claims of false teachers in the negative statement, and then he'll follow it up with a positive statement. So a negative if statement immediately followed by a positive if statement. And These duos can be seen bolted together. The first duo of statements are found in verses 6 and 7, verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The claim here is that a person can think themselves to be in a right relationship with God while actively living in sin. The false teachers would have diminished and distorted commands given to Christians to obey People following this false teaching would be led into darkness, all the while thinking that they were enjoying the fellowship of God. Jesus had a particular warning for those who would cause believers to sin, that it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew 18.6. This is the antinomian spirit, which says you do not have to obey what God requires. John's assessment is that this way of living is hiding behind a lie. Because you are lying about the relationship you have with God. There is no fellowship with God when you are living contrary to who he is. Consider this for yourselves. Are there any areas in your life that you are keeping hidden? Not crucifying the sin, but justifying it. Instead of starving the sin to its death, you secretly feed it when no one is watching, keeping it alive and well. So that's the negative. Verse 7 is the corrective, positive response. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's time, friends to come out of the darkness and come into the light, the answer is to stop hiding, stop pretending, stop, stop suppressing your conscience with the lie of a double life. Instead of walking in darkness, today is the day that you walk in the light, maybe for the first time. Walking in the light means getting totally honest with God and getting totally honest with others. Because Jesus lived the righteous life, you couldn't. Because he died the death that we deserved. And because he's been raised from the dead in great power and triumph, and is even now interceding for us in heaven. Come to the light. Be cleansed, be forgiven by him. His blood is sufficient to cleanse you from all your sin. And this is what gives us the courage to just step out and be honest. Being honest about our sins. And uh, I was talking with someone before the service about, you know, church life can be really sweet. Especially when you're on that level of confessing your sins to each other, being real, not just pretending to be religious people and sipping coffee together and singing songs. But we actually believe the gospel. We believe that we can come with all of our sin, all of our struggles, and come to the foot of the cross and be forgiven fully and enjoy that together. Walking in the light, not in the darkness, but in the light together. So then as we confess to each other, we are being real on a level that you don't see in the world. This is a divine appointment that he's given the church. And this is where church life gets really good. As we all marvel at the saving grace of God cleansing us from all our sin. So then, verse 8, John gives us the second negative if statement. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What we can gather from this is that the false teachers were promoting a type of sinless perfection. That is, a view that those in fellowship with God will be able to attain a level of perfection in their life. You're not sinning anymore. Similar to the incorrect Wesleyan and higher life views of sanctification, this, this view that they were promoting was leading believers to think that personal perfection was attainable. And the simple verdict from John on this is that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves a total lie. The truth is not in us. Fact check. Nope. It's a lie. But a correction to that comes to us in the positive statement, verse 8. Being honest that we do have sins, John tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This This is the watershed moment of the Christian life. Are we in or are we not? You know you have guilt for your sins. Everyone does. But what do you do with that guilt? What do you do with the recognition of your sins? Will you keep them hidden in shame? Or will you do, as John says, and bring them to the light? God's promise is to forgive every single one of your sins as you come into the light of his marvelous grace in the gospel. The original language shows that the word confess is in the present tense, which means you confess and you confess. You continue to confess. It is this habitual honesty in the Christian life. If we confess our sins and keep confessing our sins, God is faithful and just to keep forgiving And forgiving our sins and this habitual confession is so unlike the Roman Catholic view of confession you don't need to go to a priest you don't have a box that you have to go to and and confess your sins you can confess your sins to the living God right now at any time any place because we have a great high priest Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek but what a strange reality you find this? Sometimes it's so easy to confess our sins to the one true living God, but to tell our friends, it's a bit tough. As if that person's opinion of your sin is more important than God's opinion. You might be surprised to know that In the New Testament, there are five occurrences of confessing sin. Four out of the five instances are of a public nature. Confessing your sins publicly, like people are hearing it as you're confessing the sins. You can think of the crowds around John the Baptist confessing their sins publicly. And even James 5.16 when he says, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Out of the five occurrences in the New Testament for confessing sin, which are public, the only one that is not explicit is this one, which makes you think, maybe this one has something public tied to it. What's the big takeaway? The Christian life is one of regular honesty and being real. Are you real with people in the church? Are you pretending? John is saying that there's something essential to our fellowship with God and each other that demands that we are regularly walking in the light of honesty and confession. No more hiding. No more pretending. The last negative if statement comes in verse 10, which is odd, this verse. It almost seems like a repackaged version of verse eight and you'll see it as we read it. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Almost repackaged version of verse 8, but with one major difference and a, a serious escalation of severity when you're deceived to this level. In the false views of sin, in verses 6 and 8, the verdict for both is that a person is lying. You're lying to yourself if you think that you're not a sinful person. You're, You're just lying to yourself. But in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar. We're accusing God of lying about the scenario. For a person who goes on living in the darkness of unrepentant sin, it isn't neutrality. It is direct defamation. It is it is an accusation against God. You're wrong. God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis once wrote, is where the roles are reversed. Man is on the judge's seat and God is being examined, being found guilty in man's kangaroo court. So, what should God do? What should, he, what should he do in response to this accusation, this high-handed fist shake? It's stench upon stench because not only have we sinned, but in our corrupt nature, we, we say that you are wrong about it too. Stench upon stench. How should the holy God of holy justice respond Think of that young girl at the beginning I told you about. She was petrified to come to the light. She was petrified because she feared what punishment would await her. Is that your view of God? Is that your view of others in the church? That if you were to just bring things to the light, you'd be punished? In some way, things would go poorly for you if you confessed your sin? It's interesting, so far we've seen the back and forth, back and forth of the if statements. Well, here in the third if statement duo, there's a break. John interrupts the back and and forth flow of these statements here in chapter 2, verse 1. He interrupts the flow of thought with tenderness and compassion in such a way that is most appropriate for the disciple whom Jesus loved. How much love he received from the Lord Jesus and then bestows that to his children. He interjects with a special note of fatherly care and pastoral persuasion. What he's saying is this. This isn't the end of the story. If you are so hidden away in darkness that you are actually you're accusing God of being a liar and you have been his enemy, this isn't the end of the story for you. If you have sinned against God in this way. Today is the day you step into the light. God is inviting you today to step into the light, to give up the life in the darkness and step into the light of his marvelous grace. While sinners by nature shake their fists at God, he remains willing to receive you. What are you waiting for? John says in his final positive if statement in chapter 2, verse 2, but if anyone does sin, as in is honest, and would admit their sin before a holy God, would step into the light, well, well who is waiting for you as you step into the light? In that heavenly courtroom when you are bringing accusations against God, as you step into the light, you have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. We've sinned. You've sinned. I know. Maybe in scandalous ways, maybe in secret ways that no one else knows but you and God. But as you come into the light, we are trusting in God's promise to forgive us fully on the basis of what Christ has accomplished on the cross and what he perpetually proves moment by moment in his heavenly intercession for us. That step, that first step into the light in the heavenly courtroom, we would be undone like Isaiah. Were it not for he who stands beside us, as our advocate, our defense lawyer. And he demands, he insists that his righteousness be credited to us. I don't know what the Lord is doing in your heart and mind right now. Is there a sense in which you are suppressing what God is speaking to you? Or is there a sense in which you are being compelled to come out of the light? You've been hiding something. You've never shared it with anyone. Listen to that. Don't don't turn away from that. But embrace the light that the Lord is leading you into. Step into the light with honesty. And friends, you will be forgiven fully. Wouldn't that be better to not have to be hiding anymore? Bringing this to a close, I have three very specific applications. What could this look like for you? Number one snake egg confessions. Snake egg confessions. I hate snakes. You know the best time to kill a snake? Not when it's fully grown. But when it's in the egg. In the same way, start confessing your sins when they are in the early stage. Don't wait. Walking in the light means regular honesty about the big and small stuff. Number one, snake egg confession. Number two, how do we receive someone's confession? someone comes to us and confesses their sin how do you receive it big tip is be unshockable if we're honest with the depravity of the human heart the natural corruption and what we are prone to what we are capable of as sinners when someone comes and confesses sin that's not a shock because if i look in my heart i'm prone to the same thing i know i could go there be unshockable If you're shocked when someone confesses sin, they probably won't come to you again, and they might not go to anyone else ever again. When someone confesses sin to you, big, small, medium, let the top note of your response be one of thankfulness. Thank you for coming into the light. That must have taken incredible courage the Lord says that those who step into the light and confess their sins are forgiven of their sins. brother, sister. oh, let's pray. And then you follow up with them next week and ask how the Lord's been helping them. And you continue to pray for them. The top note should not be shock. The top note should be thankfulness that you've come into the light, which is proof that God is working in your, in your life already because people don't come to the light when they love the darkness. So that's already just a a sign of grace, and um, let's be thankful for that. Number three, habitual honesty. Make the decision today, like today even, because if there's something that the Lord is bringing to mind that you need to deal with this finally. This needs to happen today. Maybe there's someone in this room that you're gonna go speak to after this service. Make the decision today that you will find someone to speak to to confess your sins and commit to regular confession of sin. I've heard of people who um, they will meet once a week for the sole purpose of reading a passage of Scripture, confessing their sins, and praying for each other. Isn't that wonderful? No heavy-duty exegetical Bible study? That's fine. Lots of place for that in the Christian life. But do we regularly confess our sins? Find someone. Think of someone. Maybe that's in your community group. Maybe that's a, a friend. Get a couple people around you and regularly, habitually, be honest with each other. Just a reminder, you're not trying to fix each other. That's, it's not a group counseling session. Maybe there's room for that. You're not trying to fix each other. You're trying to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Nothing good grows in the dark. Do you know that? Nothing good grows in the dark. But watch how the Lord breathes grace into your life as we look to the cross, the finished work, the the grounds for our salvation, and we believe it, confess our sins, and we walk in the light together in a fellowship of believers. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we confess we are those who have sinned against you. We confess that there are areas of our lives that we seek to keep quiet, to keep hidden away from the watching world, and it, even you. Forgive us, merciful God. Forgive us for seeking to run and hide when you would have us walk in the light the marvelous light of your kindness and loving fatherly care we thank you for this message from your word that you would speak to us today draw out people in this room who have been hiding draw them out into the light and help us lord to be a church that loves each other and loves the gospel and is thankful for the work that you are doing to bring people out of the darkness into the light. May this be so for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. In Jesus' name, amen.